2: In America, midwives don't normally tend to be very busy. In the COVID era, they're booked solid as expectant mothers try to avoid hospital trips. The trend ought to outlast the pandemic. Statistics show midwifery has serious public health benefits. And you've probably heard of Parkinson's law that work expands to fill the time available. Given that so many workers are clocking in at home, our columnist has updated the law to include two versions. One for the workaholics, and one for the work-shy. But first... When the pandemic struck, a world that had run on oil for more than a century was thrown into disarray. As industries shut down and commuters stayed home, oil supplies started spilling over. By April, many producers had nowhere to store the stuff and actually paid buyers to take it. Some oil was, for the first time on record, less than worthless.
3: Yesterday, the price of West Texas Intermediate crude fell below zero for the first time in history.
2: Simply, people can't store the stuff
1: anymore. This is unprecedented. I've seen a lot in my 40-year career, but nothing like this.
2: Prices have been ticking back up, and when the club of oil exporting countries known as OPEC Plus meets this week, they're likely to nudge production back up again. But that's not to say that all the oil turmoil is coming to an end.
4: Early on the pandemic, basically, as people stopped traveling and going to work, demand for oil plummeted and so did prices.
2: Roger McShane is our Middle East editor.
4: Now prices have come back a bit since their lows in April. But it seems like relatively cheap oil is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. Um, And and that has enormous implications for the Arab world, which produces more of the stuff than any other region.
2: So let's start with the the, the region's big oil producers. How does this scene look for them?
4: For just about every country in the region, the fiscal numbers just don't add up anymore. Take a country like Algeria, which is an exporter, but it has a fiscal break-even price for oil. And that's the price it needs to balance its budget its fiscal break-even price is over $100. Now, the actual price of oil right now is $40. So it's not even close to balancing its books. And in May, it actually said it was gonna have to slash its budget by half. Other countries like Saudi Arabia, they may not seem to be as desperate. Saudi Arabia has a much lower break-even price, still not anywhere near $40. And, you know, it's sitting on a big pile of cash that it can burn through in the short term. But even Saudi Arabia is sort of indicative of a a wider problem. Several years ago, it came up with a reform plan that aimed to wean its economy off of oil, but it thought it had like a decade to implement this plan. You know, it called it Vision 2030 for a reason. It also thought it would have lots of money to implement it. But now you have a situation where both time and money are in much shorter supply. And so what you'd really like to see is for Vision 2030 to become something like Vision 2020. But instead, Saudi Arabia and others in the region are sort of using their money to support the old systems, the systems that are in place. You know, the system of handing out cushy government jobs and delivering generous
2: subsidies to people. And and what about the effects that all that will have on non-oil producing countries in the region?
4: The hardship is not just going to fall on oil producers. Take a country like Egypt, it doesn't export much oil, but it does export a lot of labor. Between two and three million Egyptians work in the Gulf, and these workers send home remittances that account for a big chunk of Egypt's GDP. That's true for many other countries in in the region. You also have countries like Egypt, like Lebanon, like Jordan, which sort of depend on the oil-rich Gulf states to help support their budgets. And they also rely on Gulf fees to be important sources of sort of trade and, and tourism, things like that. So if all of a sudden the oil rich Gulf states start spending and buying less, it affects everyone in the region.
2: So as these states and, and these regimes burn through the, the, the money and therefore don't spend it on on the, the systems that, that hold the social contract together, isn't that dangerous?
4: Yeah, I, I think it's quite dangerous. I mean. If you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, which in order to balance its its budget, it's taxing its people more now. A lot of countries in the region are cutting back their bureaucracies, um, which means no more sort of do-nothing jobs for life. And that's been how autocrats in the region have bought calm for so long. You already see some of the sort of ramifications of this. Lebanon is in the mi- middle of a fiscal crisis. Now that's not because of oil, But in the past, Gulf states might have come to Lebanon's aid. They're not doing that anymore. You look at Iraq, which is an oil exporter, but it's under enormous fiscal pressure, and that's leading to protests because people are really unhappy with what the government is delivering, which is not much. Algeria, similar. There were protests there last year. They've abated because of the pandemic, but they're going to come back. They're going to come back. Probably people will come out in greater numbers because of the economic situation there. So you're going to see unrest, and I think the more people are sort of asked to sacrifice, the more people are going to come out into the streets and wonder sort of what their governments are doing for them.
2: So clearly there's this risk of unrest in the short term. But but what about more broadly? What are these countries doing to wean themselves off of oil? What kinds of changes can they make?
4: For starters, they're trying to push more of their citizens out of the public sector and into the private sector. And, you know, that might sound a bit weird to people in the West where the private sector tends to pay more. But in the Arab world, government jobs are quite desirable because they offer good wages and generous benefits. Many governments are also trying to get more women into the workforce. And for a lot of countries, there's huge untapped potential there. For all that to happen, though, these countries need to create a more dynamic private sector. There's still a lot of top-down planning, a lot of government intervention. But you do see efforts to cut red tape. There are governments that are trying to make it easier for new firms to register and to get permits. Sometimes these reforms are as straightforward as as creating a a bankruptcy law so that businesses aren't afraid to take some risks. And I think the last thing worth mentioning is education. Universities in the Arab world teach students a lot of stuff that just isn't very useful. They don't tend to focus on skills that are in demand. So that's something that the smarter countries in the region are trying to change.
2: Is there a silver lining here in the long term in that this fixes some systems that were worrisome anyway?
4: Yeah, I mean, look, this change is going to be painful and unpleasant for both the rulers and the ruled, but a lot of it probably has to happen. And there is a, there is a real opportunity here to sort of break free from from the resource curse. For decades, you know, for over a century really, the region's economies and political systems have been built on oil, and and that's pretty unstable footing. So across the region, you have a situation now where citizens are going to be forced to start earning a living and where governments are going to have to start earning the people's consent. And if that happens, you know, that's a good thing.
2: Roger, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer.
5: My midwifery partner often likens us to lifeguards. Like, we're just sort of watching and most of the time just enjoying the view. (laughs) And then once in a while, we have to swoop in and help.
2: Robina Khalid is a licensed midwife in New York City, working with people from the early weeks of pregnancy to after the birth.
5: I guess I would compare it as midwives are assuming everything's okay and then know how to handle it if it's not, whereas obstetricians are assuming something might go wrong and looking at it from that lens.
2: Typically, our practice sees 70 or 80 clients a year. But this spring, as the pandemic spread, so too did demand for midwifery services.
5: The New York City hospitals very quickly started banning doulas, and then very quickly after that, even banning partners to laboring clients. And so immediately, between people being afraid of going into the hospital because of COVID, and then the added stressor of having to go in alone, our phones and emails started ex- loading. We had more than double what we would take in a year ask us to attend them in basically March, April, May, and June. So that was a really intense time.
6: New York was not the only city to see a huge increase in interest in midwifery when the pandemic hit.
2: Erin Braun is an economist journalist.
6: Where I'm based in Washington, D.C., for example, I sat in on a Zoom info section, actually, for women who were entertaining the idea of home births. And the midwife who was leading the session told me that her practice had doubled in D.C. in something like a few weeks after the COVID-19 crisis was declared a pandemic.
2: And that kind of runs counter to the way midwifery has been thought about historically in America.
6: It does, yeah. So midwifery is not new in America, certainly. It's been around for a long time, but midwives have historically been marginalized. And that's for a few reasons. The education and licensing requirements for certified midwives to practice differ depending on what state you live in. There's no national standard. And not all insurance carriers cover midwifery services. So even if you Did want a home birth, and you preferred a midwifery model, you might have to pay out of pocket for it, which makes it less attractive to many people.
2: And America is something of an outlier in that regard.
6: Midwifery not being integrated into national healthcare systems is quite rare. I talk to people in lots of different countries to try to get a sense of where America stands compared to everybody else, and it's really interesting. So, in Scandinavia, in Sweden, there's a 300-year-old tradition of professional midwifery. It's very common. A London Hospital I spoke with actually (laughs) set up uh, maternal health clinics in a football stadium during the pandemic so women felt safe. Midwives were some of the first staff they brought in to help run the new clinic. And in in low-income countries, too, midwives are Extremely critical to maternal health and also public health, often even act as community leaders. So, America really is the outlier where midwives are concerned.
2: So, why are people in other countries so committed to using midwives? Are there public health implications?
6: Yeah, so better integrating midwives into America's healthcare system could lead to better health outcomes for women. America is one of very few countries, about 13, where the maternal mortality rate has actually gotten worse uh, since 2000. In most places, it's getting better. Part of the reason for that is a lack of doctors and midwives. If midwives can help low-risk women through labor, that frees up lots of doctors to help with C-sections, to help with high-risk patients, things like that. So empowering midwives would help with a shortage of healthcare professionals. There's also a huge lack of trust between women and healthcare professionals when they're giving birth, and that can have a negative effect on the maternal mortality rate. That's especially true for black women in the U.S. They die from pregnancy-related complications at more than three times the rate that white women do, and doctors continually stress to me how important trust was in fixing that problem.
2: But how is it that that, that that bond of trust between a midwife um, and, and a pregnant woman actually leads to better outcomes, too, to better mortality outcomes, for example?
6: So a really good example of this is the effect that midwives can have on America's C-section rate. So C-sections can be life-saving for the woman giving birth and for the baby, but they are really invasive surgeries. They can increase the risks of infection, of hemorrhages and blood clots. The American C-section rate is something like 30% of all births, and the WHO reckons that the necessary C-section rate is actually somewhere between 10 and 15%. So that's a really big gap. And because midwives sort of calling card is not intervening in labor, they're there just to help you through it and to obviously monitor the health of the mom and the baby on, along the way. Their C-section rate is much lower than that of a hospital, for example. George Washington University Hospital in D.C. has a model model where midwives work with their doctors in their hospital. They have their own midwifery unit. And they introduced those services about a decade ago and have since seen their C-section rate drop by about 6%.
2: So do you think this, this increase in interest, this appreciation of midwifery is going to continue beyond the pandemic?
6: So midwifery was growing Even before the pandemic hit, the number of accredited birth centers, for example, has about tripled since 2010, so it was already increasing. I think that the attention that it got during the pandemic means that this is only going to continue, especially if, as we're seeing, governments and hospitals are buying into the fact that collaborating with midwives within the healthcare system leads to better outcomes for women.
5: I think that COVID in some ways was like a paradigm shift for people in terms of the way they were thinking about birth. You know, the fit isn't there, right? For like healthy people going through a physiologic process to be housed in the same place as critically ill patients. I think it, it has sort of brought awareness of home birth as a viable and safe option for people that sometimes may be even safer than the hospital. And that will help rectify some of the issues that we see in our system overall.
2: Erin, thank you very much for joining us.
6: Thanks for having me, Jason.
2: The year is 1955. C. Northcote Parkinson pens a witty article in The Economist newspaper, criticizing the efficiency of civil servants using a rather peculiar example.
3: An elderly lady of leisure can spend the entire day in writing and dispatching a postcard to her niece at Borgna Regis. Jump forward 65 years and...
2: (coughs) Jump forward 65 years and Parkinson's law, which states that work expands to fill the time available, has become received wisdom for many office workers around the world.
3: When it comes to office work, the incentive to prevaricate is pretty clear. If you finish one task, you'll only be given another, and that might be even more unpleasant than the first. So the risk there for the employee is you're just stuck in this endless cycle of meaningless tasks like a hamster on a wheel.
2: Philip Coggan writes The Economist's Bartleby column on work and management.
3: Now that we're working from home, the incentives have changed. To deal with working from home, Parkinson's Law needs an update.
2: How does working from home change things?
3: Well, it changes things in different ways for two different groups, who I've dubbed slackers and stakhanovites after the hero of the Soviet Union, a a miner who broke all production records.
2: So how do you think the rule should now work for the overachievers, the stakhanovites?
3: Well, for the Stakhanovites, what's happened now is that working from home removes the demarcation between work life and home life. No longer do you commute into work and start at a certain time and get home again. So the danger there for the Stakhanovites is that they feel anxious or they're ambitious or they're worried about being disciplined. So for the anxious home workers, work expands to fill all the time available. They're working at weekends, they're working at 10 or 11 at night because there's always something else to do and those emails and those slack messages or whatever coming in from the boss or from other colleagues.
2: And what about for the slackers? What's the update to the law for them?
3: For the slackers, it's quite different. So the boss is now out of sight, if not necessarily out of mind. So they don't have to worry about appearing to work. They don't have to worry about this presenteeism. So instead of prevaricating and spending ages to do a particular task, they can do the task really efficiently in the shortest time possible, and then they spend the rest of the day at leisure, watching the sport, going for a walk, or whatever. And so for the unconcerned, when unobserved, work shrinks to fill the time required.
2: And what about for the managers themselves, uh, the reactions to whom these behaviors emerge?
3: The interesting thing about the original Parkinson essay was that it wasn't really about the law that we now interpret that we all faff about to fill the day. It was really about how people make work for each other, how managers create subordinates and spend endless time checking the work of the subordinates and so on. So for the managers, the difficulty here is when they're employees are working at home, they've got to appear busy too. And in the conventional office, they can wander about and have a chat to people or call them in for meetings or whatever. And that makes them look as if they're busy. You can't do that so easily when people are working at home. So the substitute for that is Zoom. You have endless Zoom meetings and then Zoom meetings themselves get longer because in a conventional meeting, you can turn up And the manager sees that you're there and just by turning up, you've achieved something. But in Zoom, even though they have pictures of you online, you need to really speak as well to make sure that you've contributed to the meeting. So that makes those Zoom meetings even longer. So for managers in lockdown, Zoom expands to fill all their available time.
2: Which of the categories between Slackers and Stakanovice would you place yourself?
3: Well, in honour of Bartleby, after whom this column is made, Bartleby is a character in Herman Melville's story who wouldn't work. He would prefer not to do the task allotted to him. I am obviously a slacker. In fact, I hope this interview is going to end pretty soon because the cricket's coming on.
2: Philip, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jason.